Well, despite what you've seen on TikTok and other social media sites, Carol Baskin's husband has not been found. The Hillsborough County Sheriff says Don Lewis is still considered missing and endangered. He shared the update after an interview with Baskin for Tiger King 2 resurfaced. In that interview, she said she received documents from the Department of Homeland Security stating Lewis is alive and living in Costa Rica. Again, the Sheriff's Office says this is not true. Oh. Music and murder contains violence, oh. profanity, oh. and graphic material that may not be suitable for children oh. or people with weak stomachs. Oh. Parental advisory is definitely recommended. Greetings. This is episode 29 of Music and Murder, the show that people literally kill and die to be on. I am your host, Michael D. Keeney, and for this episode, I'm going to be doing things a bit differently. I'm going to discuss a few musicians, murders, and deaths, and give the facts of what actually happened. So this will be the most informative episode that I've ever done, but also the least gory. So nobody is getting chopped up, decapitated, and nobody's even eating anybody or drinking their blood or anything. However, it will deal with the deaths and murders of six musicians that you likely know about, but don't know the specifics. The interview for this episode will be with drummer and member of the Blue Man Group, Jordan Cohen. Thank you for being with me. Now let's talk about some factual shit so you can school motherfuckers when they try to sound intelligent about shit that they don't fucking know about. And away we go. Breaking news just into CNN. Las Vegas police have arrested a suspect in connection with the 1996 drive-by shooting death of legendary rapper Tupac Shakur. CNN's Camila Bernal joins us live right now along with CNN legal analyst Joey Jackson. So first to you, Camila, what are we learning about this arrest? Never mind what Camille had to say. I'm gonna tell you what really fucking happened. Tupac Amaru Shakur better known as the actor and rapper Tupac, was gunned down in Las Vegas on September 7th, 1995. Even though he's been dead now for over 28 years, he is still one of the most legendary and influential people of all time. We all see him on shirts, posters, and even memes for little kid birthday parties. Many of us have seen his movies and listened to his music, especially the song Hit Him Up, where he displayed his love for MC Hammer Pants and his hatred for Brooklyn rapper Biggie Smalls. Biggie Smalls, by the way, was gunned down in Los Angeles in March of 1997. Biggie's first album was titled Ready to Die. It came out when he was only 22 years old. And ironically, that record would be the only record 
that ever came out while Biggie was still alive. When he was murdered in 1997, it was exactly two weeks, two weeks, before his record Life After Death was set to be released. The names of these two records are very ironic when taken in consideration how he died and how young he was when he died. Many speculated that Biggie's murder was a retaliation for Tupac being shot on September 7, 1995 and succumbing to his wounds just six days later on September 13th. He was shot four times while Death Row CEO Suge Knight was driving in a brand new black Beamer. But we know now that all of that was bullshit. 100% bullshit. Biggie's death is still unsolved, but Tupac's murder has actually been solved. It turns out that it had nothing at all to do with Biggie Smalls. Tupac's murder manifested from a Compton gang rivalry and nothing more. The fight that Tupac was leaving was Bruce Selden versus Mike Tyson, in which Tyson knocked out Selden cold in just one minute and 49 seconds. In the very first round, obviously. Tyson had some pent-up anger to let out. You see, Tyson had just been released from a three-year sentence in Indiana for a rape conviction. Now, Tyson may be a rapist, but he did know how to knock a motherfucker out. And knock a motherfucker out quickly. So after the fight, which obviously didn't last long, Tupac and Suge Knight was getting ready to enter into the elevator of the MGM Grand Hotel, where the fight took place. This is where they encountered an alleged enemy. Like I've said many times on this show, I do not say names of gangs or criminal organizations because I like to be alive. But let's just say the two parties were from competing organizations that had orders to attack one another on sight. And so they did. Surveillance tape from the MGM shows Shakur and Knight beating on a man and then entering into the elevator. Now this man had quite a few people with him, including Dwayne Keith Davis, aka Keffy D, who was the shot caller from this competing organization that I will not mention. Once Davis heard about this beating, he then grabbed his guys and he went on the hunt. And he went on the hunt for Shakur and Knight. And unfortunately, they found them. Once they identified Shakur and Knight, the crew waited until they pulled up to a red light. Then they pulled into the right turning lane in their Cadillac and the person sitting in the back seat on the driver's side open fired on 
the black BMW that Suge Knight and Tupac Shakur were driving. Suge Knight was injured by a bullet grazing him, but Tupac, unfortunately, was shot four times. When the police asked Tupac who shot him, his last words to the police were, fuck you. Again, Shakur died six days later at the young age of 25. 19 years later, in 2015, Suge Knight left the movie set of the NWA movie Straight Out of Compton. Suge Knight purposely ran over a businessman after an argument when Knight was leaving a fast food restaurant. Knight will be eligible for parole in about 10 years from right now, if he lives that long. Knight has been dealing with some bad blood clotting while he's been in prison the last few years. Now getting back to the man who ordered the hit. After writing a book, telling many reporters and even taking part in a fucking Netflix documentary about Tupac's murder, explaining that he was in the car that shot Tupac, Dwayne Keith Davis was finally, finally arrested last year on September 29th, 2023. Even after all of this self-incrimination and being 60 years old with colon cancer, Davis pleaded not guilty and his murder trial is set for June 3rd of this year. I will definitely keep you up to date on that. Now, of course, with this being such a high-profile case, prosecutors are seeking the death penalty. Although just a couple of weeks ago, Davis was granted permission to go home to await the murder trial while on house arrest. And that's only if someone doesn't find and kill his ass first. I would definitely not want to be known as the man who is responsible for Suge Knight being shot and Tupac being killed, which likely also led to Biggie being killed as well. Dwayne Keith Davis is truly, truly one of the most hated men in America right now, and likely has about $2 million on his fucking head at this very moment. So if you want to be a millionaire, you might want to talk to the right people if you know where he's at. Okay, so now we move on to Rolling Stone's founding guitarist, Brian Jones, who was later replaced by Ron Woody. In the late hours of July 2nd, 1969, after a big party at his country home, Jones was found fully clothed and at the bottom of his well-lit swimming pool which means that upon discovering his body, he wasn't dead for long. Now many speculate that Jones had to be murdered because like Tupac Shakur, Jones was also barely 25 years old and overall seemed to be in great health. He was convicted twice for possession of weed, so many speculate that he was likely doing other drugs at the same time. 
but nothing but alcohol, some pills, and a couple sleeping pills were found in the toxicology report, and none were at toxic levels, just trace amounts. Overall, Joan's death was labeled as nothing but a misadventure, because this was England in 1969. Between all 120,000 of you and myself, I swear, I swear to you that someone bludgeoned Jones and threw him into his own swimming pool. Unfortunately, we'll never know for sure. Now, I do realize that this is the first case that I've ever discussed on Music and Murder that doesn't have a definitive murderer, but the music portion of this show makes the death and even the acknowledgement of Brian Jones relevant. For many years, the Stones were labeled as the world's biggest and most successful band in history, but numbers don't back that, so we'll just say it, it's an opinion, right? But we have to wonder, what would have changed had Jones stayed alive and in the band? Keith Richards is now 626 years old, and Brian Jones died at 25. Life is unfair. It was recorded that his death was officially caused by misadventure, like I said, and I think that that is complete, 100% bullshit. On July 5th, just two days later, the Rolling Stones abruptly set up a concert in Hyde Park in England to pay homage to their founding guitarist. Literally over 250,000 people showed up to the concert. Because although they were just becoming huge in the United States at this time, they were already a well-known household name in the UK. Right before releasing 3,500 Monarch Butterflies, to flutter over the 250,000 people in attendance, Mick Jagger read Adonis from Shelley. And these are the exact words that he read to the ginormous audience verbatim. Peace, peace. He is not dead. He does not sleep. He has awakened from the dream of life. Tis we who lost in stormy visions. Keep with phantoms in unprofitable strife, and in mad trance strike with our spirit's knife. In vulnerable nothings, we decay like corpses in a carnal. Fear and grief convulse us and consume us day by day. And cold hopes swarm like worms within our living clay. Now, I know that that was meant to be poetic and beautiful and everything, but to me it kind of reads like Slayer lyrics or something. I, I, I don't know. I know all the big words and what they mean and stuff like that. I might not pronounce them perfectly, but it just doesn't seem like something that I would read for one of my friend's funerals. I, I, I don't know. And it wasn't a funeral, by the way, I'm sorry, memorial. It was, though, to this day, the most beautiful and successful memorial that I've ever known of. Brian Jones's death to this day remains such a mystery 
I truly, truly wonder what would be uncovered if his body was assumed and a new autopsy and toxicology report was done. Because in my mind, as I stated, he was murdered by a guest or beaten unconscious by a guest and then thrown in the swimming pool. Brian Jones simply was not intoxicated or high enough to simply just jump in his swimming pool and just die and sink to the bottom. Nothing other than murder makes any sense at all. Now we will be right back with more murder stories, more true murder or OD stories from your favorite rock stars that you know and love. Right now, this is my favorite song from my special guest, Jordan Cohen, who is the mastermind behind the band Sons of Jupiter, and it is called Invocation. And by the way, Jordan also is the drummer, the founding drummer of Power Man 5000, and he's in the Blue Man Group as well. I will be right back.
So the next death that I would like to discuss is the death of the Almighty, the guitar god Jimi Hendrix. I know many of you think that you know how he died, and some of you actually do, but take a second and really think about what you factually know about his death, right? Before we get started, I do need to make a quick retraction from part one, because I do most of this by memory and not off a script. So my apologies, my deepest apologies, but Tupac was actually killed in 1996 and not in 1995. Everything else in that segment was accurate. Okay, so let's begin and see if you're correct about what you think about Jimmy's death. Jimmy, who was born in Seattle, Washington on November 27th, 1942. Jimmy was born Johnny Allen Hendricks and he later changed his name to James Marshall Hendrix, and then later, of course, finally, the Jimi Hendrix that we know and love. Jimi didn't actually pick up a guitar until he was 15 years old, and allegedly, from the time that he laid his big, giant, huge hands on that guitar, he already knew how to play. He was obviously a prodigy and a musical genius, and in my mind, possibly, a reincarnation of an extremely talented musician from the past because I strongly believe in reincarnation because that's not what a scary preacher taught me that's what my soul and gut tell me now though Jimmy was born in the States he really liked being in England very very much like a lot during his last week that he was alive Jimmy suffered from over exhaustion kinda like Elvis if you've seen the movie and lack of sleep and flu-like symptoms which could have stemmed from anything such as a virus or even a bacterial infection or even a type of STD because one thing about Jimmy is he didn't only love to play guitar but Jimmy was also really into the ladies and I do mean that literally and of course they were very into him so he was able to fuck pretty much who he wanted when he wanted. At this time, he was also experiencing what some say was delusional thoughts about his career that likely stemmed from his love of hallucinogenics and drugs in general, right? On the morning of September 18th, 1970, 53 years ago, Jimmy overdosed on barbiturates. Now for anybody listening that doesn't know what barbiturates actually are, think about like uh, yellow jackets, reds, um, there's also like phenobarbital, uh, different things like that, and barbiturates were used to treat seizures, insomnia, anxiety, like just multiple amount of things. So I, I think that he was probably taking phenobarbital because that was actually the most strongest one. And we're talking Jimi Hendrix here, so he had pretty much his pick of whatever he wanted, right? So if you're gonna take, if you're gonna be taking barbiturates, you might as well be taking the ones that are the strongest. Now here lies the controversy because the overdose itself is not what technically killed Jimmy. 
Jimmy died as a result of asphyxiation from inhaling his own vomit. It is impossible to, to actually determine if the drugs would have killed him anyway, but his official cause of death was asphyxiation. His girlfriend at the time was named Monica Daneman, and she found Jimmy dead in her very upscale London apartment in Samarkand Hotel. Her, her apartment was in the Samarkand Hotel on Notting Hill. She found Jimmy dead at 11.18 a.m., and he was officially pronounced dead at 12.45 p.m. Now, the other controversy surrounding Jimi Hendrix's death is that many speculate that this could have actually been a suicide. And honestly, it definitely could have been, because when people take too many pills when they're trying to kill themselves, a lot of times the stomach will reject it and throw it out. And if you've already gotten high enough to where your brain kind of turned off, then your brain's off, your stomach is throwing this stuff back into your throat, and your body's trying to breathe. And uh, that could definitely be a possibility. I didn't know Jimi Hendrix, obviously, so I have no idea what kind of state of mind he was in. Now, Jimmy's girlfriend, Daneman, was never suspected for any wrongdoing by the police, and she did cooperate thoroughly. There were a toxic amount of drugs in Jimmy's system, so the cause of death is not disputable. We know what killed him, we just don't know if it was on purpose or not. Now, the death of Jimi Hendrix basically set the 27 Club in stone, and that's when it basically came to light that many musical artists were dying at the age of 27. Since the list has grown and continues to grow, I sometimes wonder if this, in fact, is some kind of pact with something sinister and supernatural. Why 27? Why so many at 27? There has to be some type of explanation for this, and it's not always going to be logical, right? So now that you know the facts of Jimmy's death, were you correct with what you thought before I started talking about it? If so, congrats. You definitely know your shit, right? Oh, and one last thing. Jimmy's girlfriend, Monica Daneman, later married guitarist Uli John Roth of the Scorpions who joined the band in 1973 when Michael Schenker left the band to join the band UFO. So she really liked rock star, like rock star guitarists. And apparently, those rock star guitarists really liked her back. Finally, what makes this case so mysterious is that Jimmy's ex and writer Kathy Etchingham begged British police to reopen the case and reinvestigate Jimmy's death because she swears that Monica Daneman did in fact drug and kill him. In 1993, they officially finally closed the case and the rest is left up to all of our imaginations. But my opinion is that Daneman had nothing to do with Jimmy's death. Jimmy blew up and became a superstar very fast and he was one of the hardest working musicians in the business. To the point that, like Elvis and many other musical gods, he put his fans in work over his own well-being, and he self-destructed. If he killed himself or not, it's irrelevant. He was self-destructing, for sure. I believe that he was not murdered in any way, and he took the pills himself in efforts to try to get some sleep. If you're a touring musician, you realize the importance of sleep, 
and how hard it is to come by sometimes. If you're with a label, you're usually ridden so fucking hard and put away so fucking wet like a motorcycle. This is the type of shit that the general public does not see. The shit that comes with the lifestyle. No rest, no sleep, and everyone wants to talk to you all day and all night. So you turn to drugs and alcohol. I also have a theory about the 27 Club as well. I don't think that it's actually a curse. It could be. But most of the 27 Club were signed around the age of 20. And right around 7 years of being on the road, you have either slowed down and cracked the code to balancing this crazy lifestyle, or you self-destruct. And some, especially the greats, with the most unforgiving schedules, unfortunately, self-destruct. I know most people think that Courtney killed uh, Kurt Cobain too, but honestly, she was shooting up with him all the fucking time, and she could have easily gave him a hot shot. I'm not saying she didn't want him dead, I just think Kurt was extremely unhappy and spoke of death more than he spoke of music. So I think he really did willingly shoot himself, but I don't know, that's just my opinion. Y'all can burn that bitch at the stake if you want to, cause I really don't like her, but getting back to Jimmy, I really think that the world needed him longer. We all got fucked over when he OD'd. Thank God he did leave us with many songs and many records while he was here. Bold as Love and Castles Made of Sand are my two favorite Hendrix songs for anybody that cares. Please check them out if you haven't heard them. They're not very popular and they weren't on the radio much, but they're really good. Little Wing's really good too. Now my favorite Jimi Hendrix quote of all time was when Jimi said, I don't really live on compliments. As a matter of fact, they have a way of distracting me. I know a lot of musicians and artists out there who hear the compliments and think, wow, I must really be great. And so they get fat and satisfied and they get lost and forget about their actual talent and start living in another world. In other words, Jimmy was prophesizing about Motley Crue frontman Vince Neil. I actually like compliments myself but I sure as hell don't let them change anything about my work ethics or anything like that. Money and fame do change many people, but they sure as fuck don't change everyone. Because other than working himself to death, they didn't change Jimi Hendrix. Moving on to my number four in the How Do They Really Die episode. In 1980, one of my favorite singer-songwriters, Bon Scott, also died in London. Are you seeing a little pattern here yet? I didn't plan three out of the four deaths that I've discussed thus far occurring in London because it's not even that big of a place geographically. But here we are. 1980 in London. Bon Scott had just been in the studio that week recording the song Ride On for a different album, Not Dirty Deeds, which it was on in the United States. Many people don't realize that the album covers and songs do usually change for other countries especially back in the day when people actually purchased records instead of three-minute singles. During the late-night hours of February 18, 1980, Bond was leaving a London pub called The Machine. The club is still there, but is now called Coco with a K. Once Bond left the club, he got into his friend's car that he borrowed and he passed out. The make and model of the car that he died in was a Renault 5. 
which looks something like an English version version of like a Ford Pinto or something like that. I looked it up, it's a really ugly car. His friend who owned the car found him unconscious in the car the next morning. Now the official cause of death for Bond Scott was labeled as alcohol and misadventure by the London police. Kind of like Brian Jones 11 years prior. But here's where shit gets strange. And here is why I put the story of Bon Scott and Jimi Hendrix next to each other. Remember how I talked about Michael Schenker leaving the Scorpions to join the band UFO? Well, the other UFO guitarist, Paul Chapman, allegedly knew about Bon's death before he was found the next day. And he was with Bon earlier that night and stated that Bond left to go by heroin shortly before he allegedly died. This all leads up to the allegations that Bond did not die from alcohol poisoning, but rather a mixture of opiates and alcohol. And further allegations speculate that Bond was using heroin with Chapman when he overdosed. But I'm not going to say that's anywhere near a fact, because that's a pretty fucked up thing to say if it didn't really happen that way but it is said by many people and has been published in many books. There are no allegations whatsoever stating that Bond was murdered, only that he died from uh, actual heroin overdose rather than alcohol poisoning. It is very strange that his last song that Bond ever recorded was Right On, because Right On happens to be my favorite ACDC song of all time, and I'm sure that won't ever change. I've thought about doing it live myself or even redoing it, but I love the song too much to fuck with it. Some things are just better left alone, and that song is definitely one of them. Bon Scott missed the 27 Club by five years. Thus, he was 33 when he died, and his musical legacy, like that of Jimi Hendrix, will live on as long as humans walk the earth, and both of their deaths will always be shrouded in a little bit of mystery, and they will never, ever be 100% solved. Ever. We will be right back with the final two mysterious and controversial deaths in our interview with Jordan Cohen from the Blue Man Group and Power Man 5000 right after this song of mine called Over You Yet. The song was recorded live in the studio in Hollywood a few years back. It's on everything if you like it. It's also very organic and one of my all-time faves, so I sincerely hope that you dig it. It's been a long, long time since I saw you But sometimes, late at night, you're all I see Well, I keep my hand on the bottle when you visit because I still haven't gotten over you yet lots of ladies of the evening they try to save me Cause 
they don't know that my heart belongs to you. Well, I keep my hand on the bottle when they visit. Cause I still haven't gotten over you yet. Now just turn the goddamn music on. Jesus Christ. Fucking idiot. There we go. Hey, y'all. It's Morgan Wilder. And when I'm not busy making babies, I always make sure to listen to... What's the name of this stupid fucking show? Uh, Music and Killers. But usually I'm just busy making babies and singing songs I didn't write. And now I have about a million to two million dollars a month in child support because I have 326 motherfucking kids and they're all named Morgan. Even the girls, man. Morgan the 326 was born just three motherfucking days ago. Pretty soon I'm gonna have to buy my own city just for me and all my women and all my friends and band members cause man, I fuck all of them cause I can. Anyway, I listen to this stupid fucking show because I'm getting paid a lot of money to say that. So y'all now have a good night and come see me live and I will certainly get you backstage if you're a girl. Your boyfriends and your husbands are not invited. Now peace out, Nick. Okay, that was Morgan Wallen. And I'd also like to add that to reach me or send me, Michael D. Keeney, music links, please message me on Instagram at music underscore murder underscore podcast. And please subscribe and leave the show a good review if you enjoy it. Mention me again, motherfucker. Oh, and make sure to support Morgan Wallen and his 326 kids. Now, back to the episode. So now we move on to the death of the man in black. 
and one of the biggest and most influential recording artists that ever lived, Mr. Johnny Cash. Mr. Cash was born on February 26th, 1932. He was born in Kingsland, Arkansas, which is very, very close to Memphis, where he was signed by Sun Records. Right around the same time Elvis was signed by Sun Records, actually. They had some talent come through those doors for sure. Johnny was actually born with no first or middle name. His legal name at birth was J. R. Cash. Now when Johnny enlisted into the Air Force, they told him that he at least needed to have a first name. So they called him John R. Cash. And when Sun Records signed him, they named him Johnny Cash. Thus, a star was born. Now after Johnny signed with Sun Records, he went on to become basically the biggest outlaw country singer in American history. And he was also like a father to Hank Jr. In fact, when Hank Jr. almost died during a hunting trip in Montana, Johnny Cash and June Carter were the only ones in the hospital room when he came out of his coma. I've heard some pretty crazy stories about them too. Now Johnny Cash's biggest claim to fame likely came from the fact that he began playing and recording live at multiple prisons because he was a Christian man and he did believe that inmates could be redeemed and forgiven. Merle Haggard was actually serving time for robbery in San Quentin in 1960 when he saw Johnny Cash live and it changed his life forever and was the reason why when Merle was released he later became one of the biggest country stars in the world and still is to this day. I just gotta love the days where you can land a major record deal as an older country singer that doesn't rap. In 1969, Johnny Cash played San Quentin again, and that's when his photographer asked Johnny what he thought of the prison authorities. Johnny's response to that question was the picture of him flipping the bird that turned into one of the most iconic photos in music history. I actually have a friend that has that tattooed on his leg. Johnny also used that photo for a full page ad in Billboard magazine after winning the Grammy for Best Country Album for his album Unchained. After Nashville snubbed him and country radio gave him no airtime. Nashville snubbed many artists including Hank Sr. and later on Hank Jr. They tried to snub Morgan Wallen, but after his 285th kid was born and his sales soared, they of course let him right back in with open arms because Nashville is literally all about the money these days. And you can quote me on that. There'll be plenty of southern hospitality as long as you're worth a few million dollars over there. I know. I lived over there. Johnny passed away on September 12th, 2003 at the age of 71 due to respiratory problems allegedly resulting from complications with his diabetes. And I know all about that because my father had his legs cut off in the last couple years because of diabetes. It's a very, very bad thing. Cut down on your sugar, people. We have to. However, I believe that it was more, and speaking of Johnny Cash's death, I believe that it was more of a death resulting from a broken heart. You see, just four months prior to Johnny's death, he did lose the love of his life. June Carter, 
who he was married to for around 35 years. June passed away from a leaky heart valve, which basically means that her heart valve was not closing tight enough to keep the blood that exited her heart from re-entering her heart. June was born in Mesa Springs, uh, Mesa Spring, Virginia on June 23rd, 1929, which I kind of think was where she got her name since she was born in June. And she passed away on May 15th, 2003 at the age of 73 with Johnny by her side. I believe after that, Johnny was ready to die. Just seven months prior to his death and three months prior to June's death is when Johnny recorded and released Hurt from Nine Inch Nails. I strongly believe that's when Johnny actually knew he was gonna die soon. And that song was his swan song in a way. The video is absolutely moving and it will make you cry if you're a true Johnny Cash fan. If you ever go to the Johnny Cash Museum in Nashville, the video is looping non-stop with some of the items in the video in the room. Johnny's final words when he passed away was, I hear the train a-coming, which are the first lyrics to his ninth biggest hit, Folsom Prison Blues, which to me is his greatest song of all time. I absolutely love that song. Johnny and June lived, loved, and fought hard and they are one of the most famous couples in music history. They have even been compared to a musical version of Bonnie and Clyde, who also lived, loved, and fought hard. No couples can love each other that much without having some kind of drama. Toxic relationships are toxic, but true love does not come without the cost of a little craziness, because love in itself is crazy and irrational, and to this day, it remains a psychological phenomenon. Hopefully, it remains like that because some things are better just left a little mysterious, right? Moving on to the next recording artist's death. And this is also not a murder, but I actually asked many people in person so they couldn't look it up on their phones how they thought that Prince died. And of course, I got different answers from every single one of them. So let's set the record straight on this amazing man with a resume a fucking mile long. Contrary to popular belief, Prince was actually born with the name Prince. He didn't change it. His name was Prince when he was born. His full legal birth name was Prince Rogers Nelson. He was born in Minneapolis, Minnesota on June 7th, 1958. So besides Tupac, he is the youngest of all four of the other recording artists that I spoke about on this episode. Which is quite odd being that Prince has literally, literally released 40 studio albums. Take that in for a second. Can you think of any artist that actually released 40 studio albums? He also won multiple awards all around the world. If there was an award for it and it had to do with music, Bet your ass that Prince won the motherfucker at least one time. And he also wrote thousands of songs for other artists, including Sinead O'Connor's Nothing Compares to You, Stevie Nicks's Stand Back, and even the Bangles hit Manic Monday. Prince was a dancer, a producer, an amazing guitarist, 
and talent just poured out of him like no other. There was really nothing that this man did not accomplish. He sold over 150 million records. However, actually there was one thing that he couldn't do. Prince could not live long enough to see his 58th birthday. The iconic star died in his home state of Minnesota at the age of 57 from a fucking fentanyl overdose. The main reason why I'm doing this segment on Prince is to help bring more awareness to this epidemic that is killing so many amazing people. Do not buy pills off the streets, ever. And don't shoot up anything that you don't know for a fact what it is. This nasty shit is stopping hearts all over the fucking world. Don't let yourself become another statistic. There's multiple artists, especially in the rock world, that have also died from fentanyl. But they keep it hushed out, right? They kind of just find a way to keep it out of the press. Make better choices than that. Please, stay away from that shit at all costs. And that does wrap up the story portion of this episode. But we will be right back with the interview that I've been talking about during this whole episode with Jordan Cohen of Powerman 5000, The Blue Man Group, and Sons of Jupiter, right after this song from a band called Mycopath. And I don't know the name of it, but it's just a nice little quick little ditty that I just thought was kind of cool and relaxing. So I'm going to play it. And first, before I play it, I would like to thank you for being here and spending this time with me. And always remember, just because you're paranoid, it does not mean that they're not out to get you. Now we will be right back with Jordan Cohen, and this is a great interview that I really think you're going to like. This guy's done it all pretty much. Okay, be right back. Okay, and we are now going to call Jordan Cohen from all kinds of groups. We're going to talk about it right now. So let me call him. There's a speaker. Hello. Is this Jordan Cohen? This is. So Jordan is in Blue Man Group, Power Man 5000, and he has an amazing band called Sons of Jupiter. And we are about to talk to him about all three of them. So everybody chill the fuck out and sit down and get ready to hear an awesome conversation. 
So let's let's talk about let's talk about Sons of Jupiter. Now, when I look at the picture and I look at the picture like on uh, not so much the album cover, but like on Spotify and stuff like that, there's two of you. So who who does what in the band? I mean, I imagine you do okay. a lot of percussion. Okay. So well, Sons of Jupiter is basically a vanity project. It's a vanity studio project. I've never pursued doing live thing of it. And like a lot of my friends are like, oh, you gotta do it live. You know, it just literally is like the band XTC. The singer was always like stage shy like they never before they did studio records i don't have a huge desire to do a lot if i if i did i would want to find a, a better singer and front person to do it so you know maybe i will at some point when i wanted to really get the idea together i talked to my buddy thaddeus korea who's like my older brother and that's the guy in the picture his dad was chick korea you know the famous jazz artist right right i've heard, I've heard that, the that's name. thaddeus is his son but thaddeus was in blue man for many years and he's always been kind of like a mentor to me like my older brother and he's all—he's a musician, he's a bass player and a drummer, but also a great engineer and producer. So it kind of it was my project, it kind of became our project. So he's the other guy in the picture. And the two records we did, we recorded at like his home studios, which are, he has, you know, crazy gear and great setup. Oh, the recording um, is phenomenal. I mean, literally, that's the reason why I'm interviewing you. It's not because of Power Man 5000 or the Blue Man Group, it's because of Sons of Jupiter. Like I, when I heard the music, I was like, fuck, this is amazing. It's a so I really unique. appreciate it because it's, it's no one knows about it. It's just kind of my, you know, my secret project. And but it's just the kind of thing like a dumb artist guy that will spend 15 grand to make a record that I'm not even trying to go <laughs> For me, it's more about I'm on the earth making music. I want to leave my mark. That's one of the things I'll do because I teach drums. I, oh, so, nice. Nice. Yeah, I teach at a couple little schools here and then I teach on my own. And actually, I do teach virtually as well. So if any of your listeners want drum lessons, I can, uh, I don't know if you can uh, support buy backlinks or anything in your site or whatever but totally you you sent me some an email in the email so i will put all the links that you sent me in there and another thing is about that album that that just intrigued me and i listened to the whole thing and I'm a guy that gets, like, I would say, without even exaggerating, I probably get about 10 songs sent to me a day now. Most of them just, you know, they're just not ready. And uh, so they'll, they'll send stuff. But I mean, like, when I started listening to you, to your stuff, the first song I listened to was Invocation, I think it was. Invocation, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I and I just I was just like fuck where has this been this is this is actually amazing I just love the horns and I'm not even a horn guy like I just I, I don't know I just really liked it and then I got into listening to it my second favorite song is Thank You I love that song so so Invocation is cool because um, I just involve so many random people I mean there's probably like eight different people on that the horn player is a guy named Julian Tanaka a Vegas guy he's like an alumni of UNLV which has a strong jazz program. Now he is, uh, I think he chairs like the jazz department at um, LVA, this Las Vegas Academy, which is a great art school, which just churns out all these. I think like some of the guys in the Killers went there or whatever. Julian was, uh, you know, he's primarily a jazz player, very educated guy. And I'm like, you know, I'm I'm not a jazz player. I mean, I, I studied it and everything like that. But, you know, we just know each other from like jam sessions and things around like, and just call the guy up and give him the music. And he's like, yeah, he's like, this is really interesting. It's cool. I'll, I'll, I'll do something on it. He showed up. And then thank you. There's uh, there was a punk 
kind of punk rock band here called The Objects. And this girl, Melanie, was a singer in it. She's She's been in L.A. for a while now, but, you know, I wanted to do something with her for a while, and I just contacted her, you know, got her to sing on it. And Yeah, no, it, it, it works. And when she does, like, the mmm or whatever, like, when you're doing, whenever, I guess, it's you singing, is it, is it you singing those parts? Yeah, we trade off, and when, you know, the other person's singing, you know, you ad-lib. You know, I kind of have a, a pretty clear vision of what I want, so I coached everyone through it. Um, let them do their things, but I definitely give direction. And, and Thaddeus and I together give, give a good amount of direction. Nice. Um, who, who wrote but, most of the lyrics? Uh, I mean, all the music and all the lyrics I wrote. Okay, I, I wrote nice. Um, sometimes some little parts, like... In that song, Thank You, there's a couple brothers who are the music director and the assistant music director in the Blue Man Show here now, Andrew and Robert Gomez. They play bass and guitar in it, and so they wrote some really cool little changes and things like that right, over the parts right. that I wrote, because that's what I do. I'll write kind of more basic stuff, and then I'll get guys that can really play, uh, guys or girls, whatever. And just piece um, it apart. And, and like them alliterate on it, expound upon the idea, and work their magic, And because we have mutual trust because we've played together before you know so once you have that with someone you need you get the right person and it's that's where like the magic happens i think you know yeah because my demos i demoed literally everything i'm like mediocre at everything but i'll play a lot of virtual stuff sometimes i'll play basic guitar and i record it really horribly like i don't mix it and i'll just be like that is i demoed everything and i send them to people and they're like oh these weird demos um <laughs> but then it's like polishing a turd basically you know right. so like we'll, we'll import demos and you know all the thaddeus will you know create all the sessions and import everything and then just start to extract my demo stuff and replace it with the better players and the better takes and the better recordings and so it's kind of an interesting process yeah i mean session musicians that will that's what we do most of the time you'll hear a guy singing you know four chords on a guitar and then you you throw in some harmonies you figure out the solo you figure out little parts you figure out a bridge and you do all that stuff for them and they pay you I feel like a tool, but like, I definitely listen to Joe Rogan sometimes because I right. find it interesting. No, he's good. You know? He's good. He, he has interesting no, stuff. It's funny. Well, it's funny when I do interviews like this now because I, I listen to different podcasts. I like um, Conan O'Brien's podcast. I like Joe Rogan. There's a bunch of other like weird, you know, like Buddhism stuff and Freakonomics I like. Um, some A lot of science things I like. But I feel... I feel when I do interviews now, I speak much more regular and freely because of podcast culture, where I feel less worried. Like, I feel like podcasting, um, that culture has made it all right to just be normal and just, you know, to be messy. I think it's like a bastion of freedom where, you know, in the entertainment industry, everything else is so scripted. Yes. And... I, I mean, you're doing it, so I don't know, do you, would you agree with that? I totally do. I totally do. You know, um, uh, John Stewart, all these other guys, you know, are, are doing this now, you know, like, you know, different people. That Cat Williams interview, man, it's like, it's huge, you yeah, know? exactly. But it's like people, I think people want to hear real stuff, you know? Yeah, that's the reason why, like, whenever I, I first called you, I just like to record it, because I like it to be more like, organic. I mean, I'm going to I'm gonna edit the hell out of it and cut half of out what we talk about because I could only go a half an hour but it's like I still want it to be organic and free spoken you know we can cuss we can do whatever like I think
think I should get into podcasting because I just can talk about nothing forever. <laughs> you know, like, no, it's you know. good. It's better than like me having to force words out of you. And you are honestly the first interview that I've ever done that I've never actually spoke to you at all before the interview. I've never, I've never done that. Like all the other ones, I always talk to him for at least oh, you know yeah. five, well, six yeah, I'm minutes. Sorry. I've just been, you know, when you have kids. And oh no, I, I don't, so I don't mind at all. I don't mind and, at all. Uh, yeah, but, but maybe maybe this uh, maybe we're yielding a better result. Totally, totally. I don't feel that I need to talk to anybody. I just like to give them a warning that they just tell them like not not a warning, but just tell them how the sequence is going to go and let them know that if they say something and they fuck up, it's okay. I can I can pull it out. So I, my biggest thing with doing interviews at all is just that I want people to feel relaxed when I am talking to them. I don't. I've done I've done probably a hundred interview radios uh, radio interviews live in my life, and I'll tell. It's it's fucking stressful. Usually I'll drop a Xanax before I do it so I could calm down or have a drink or something. It's like I just want How everybody long have you to been know. doing it now? I've only been doing the podcast for about two and a half years. Do you see uh, how different it is now? How, how, how like, Oh my God, yes. Improvements? Like, are you totally. like, eons better now and it's just more part of your, before you think about it, now do you not think about it? Like, how has it changed in two and a half years? I've become so much more comfortable that I do not get nervous at all. I, I could literally interview Elvis Presley on here and I my, it wouldn't raise my heartbeat one fucking bit. Like, I mean, you just get so used to it and I love that because it used to make me a little nervous. And when I was talking about, like, having to take a Xanax and stuff it wasn't when I was doing when I was given interviews it was when I was having people interview me you know oh it, right yeah. it's weird I'm a performer I can walk out on stage and I'm fine if I have public speaking I still get really nervous and if I'm like filming something I just one of those people that hates the way I look I've always been like that I don't look at myself I don't want to see myself talking and so it's like I'm, I can be very self-conscious at the same time it's what I do I perform so I, it's a it's it's a weird it, to me it's contextual yeah you know yeah and it's um, good to be a little but if nervous. I'm behind a drum kit and I'm going out to play I'm like you know I'm gonna walk up like it's you know it's like it's fight time you know what I mean you yeah know, but, Jonathan Davis but, from Corn uh, he, yeah. he used to he used to throw up before every show and he doesn't do that anymore but he used to wait who uh, Jonathan from Corn the singer oh okay yeah 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 interesting we toured with him a little bit and he was always the sweetest guy. Oh, he is—he's fucking amazing. I've only—I've met him like four or five times, but I'm—I'm I'm friends with his his younger brother Marky that had edema. Oh, Dima, yeah, that was a cool thing, yeah. Because I'm from Fresno, you know, so, like, we were going over there. I owned a magazine in Fresno. Uh, and they're I mean, from Bakersfield? Yes, yeah, Marky, yeah, yeah. Marky still yeah. lives there, and I believe I believe John's house is still, his main house is still there, too. I mean, you know, John's yeah. worth three, four hundred million dollars, so he's got a lot of houses, but it's like, I think that his main residence is, is there. Yeah, um, I mean, you know, it's kind of like my old band Power Man, like, um, Spider the Singer is, like, the fifth or sixth incarnation or something, but, you know, it's like, corn's like that, too. It's just amazing, like Seven Dust. Some of these bands, it's just amazing. Well, I mean, Ultimate, like Rolling Stones. It's just amazing, and I really love it. I appreciate it. And just people just still doing it, still doing it. For yeah, years yeah. and years and years and years. And I love that. How John does it, I mean, screaming for three nights every single night when he's like 60 years old, I just don't, I don't fucking get that. Because that guy goes all out every show. I know, yeah, yeah. I, I saw them, I think, um, uh, maybe two years ago. How long were you in Power Man 5000? I think it was just like shy of eight years, I believe. Okay. As far as big bands, who was your favorite band that you toured with? 
favorite band to toured with? Oh, it's pretty hard. Because um, you get to watch all these other bands. Because I've I've toured toured. It's like half of the half of the coolness is being able to watch everybody else. You know. Well, I mean, you know, like, like in terms of just the overall impact, like we did the first Ozfest. The first Ozfest. Oh, tour. nice, nice. Um, opening on the main stage, around the main stage. So it was on the main stage, and I, you know, I remember meeting Ginger from Manson. Right. Um, uh, I, you know, it's funny. This I always thought he was a cool guy. Logan, who was a machine head, who is now Logan Mater. He's like, a, you know, I got to play frisbee and like smoke weed with Dimebag. You know. Oh, that's um, fucking cool. And basically, like, I think it was us. On the main stage, okay, the lineup on the main stage was us, Machine Head, Fear Factory, Typo, Manson, Pantera, and then Ozzy and Sabbath. Vinny Paul lived out here for a bunch of years and, you know, came a fixture out here. Right, right. For a long time. Yeah, so episode nine of, of this podcast is all about uh, about Dime and <clears throat> how Dime was killed and stuff like that. And that was that was pretty much the the main one that I literally started crying when I was doing. I had to keep doing retakes because when I started talking about Zach Wild and Eddie Van Halen at his funeral, Eddie Van Halen like played a, a voicemail off of his phone, then gave his girlfriend the Bumblebee guitar, the actual real and one. And he buried him with yeah. Yeah, and it just it, it was yeah. just, it was just fucking sad. The last words that the guy ever spoke was van halen it just it, it was just uh the clips that i played and stuff it just it it was very hard for me to do yeah, i felt for Vinny so much because it's like how helpless would you feel to see your family member your brother your sister killed in front of you right in front it's of just, you it's the worst thing imaginable yeah um, yeah they so were inseparable I, I could almost yeah, guarantee that vinnie paul would probably still be alive today if that if that didn't happen yeah i mean he, um, lo- he lost his other half yeah i mean you know vinnie he liked to hit it hard you know he was he, um but you know I definitely I'm sure that you have a hard time just sitting still and thinking things are all right when something like that happens you know what I mean yeah well you where know, do you go you know, from there I mean, from you, you, mean? You, you already separated with, with Phil and you're not you're not in Pantera anymore then your brother's dead I mean really what the but, fuck but he, do you do from he, there out here he built up quite a big community of friends and he had a, a real big um, a big tight knit community out here you know nice um, nice so yeah and like hey, it's a very weird scene in Vegas, you know, it's like you're out, it's like it would be like you see Vinnie Paul and like Carrot Top hanging out, you know, and it's just it's just totally. Vegas is very Coolio sweet. too before he died. I I, I liked Coolio. Oh a lot. yeah, I never met him, but you know, yeah, Flavor Flav be hanging out, Nicholas Cage. It's just such a weird scene. Same thing here. like in Nashville, like but I mean it's mostly country singers, but you do see a lot of actors. You see like, you know, I was driving Uber and Lyft over there when I wasn't playing and like I I had all kinds of motherfuckers in my car that like I I don't even want to start dropping names because like that there was some very famous people that I was driving around right and, uh, and we're it, most of them uh, courteous and yeah totally respectful totally. yeah, yeah <laughs> are pretty professional and respectful and it's 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 very strange if you meet someone who's not cool or you but know people do have bad days just like anybody else you know so whenever I would get a celebrity in my car I would I would let them start the conversation I'm not gonna bug them 
because I know yeah. that I know what it's it's like to an extent. I've never been a celebrity, but I've been around enough to know that they have bad days and they don't want to fucking sign autographs and talk about everything all day long. You know, it's like sometimes they just want some quiet time. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I felt bad. I um one of my favorite actors is Nicolas Cage. Totally love him. I um supermarket we go to here. I was with my two kids and I came around the aisle and he was in the aisle just buying whatever and I was just like oh what the fuck you know and I was like yeah. I don't get starstruck but I'm like come on man. and then I just chatted with him a little bit and just even hearing him talk to me was just surreal that is because he um, has such a unique voice and my kids were looking at me like why is daddy acting so weird and I was like so stoked for years I've really gotten into his latest movies like Mandy and Pig and uh, you know the um, the one with Pedro Pascal I forget the movie uh, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent like you know, guys just amazing yeah yeah and he's been in he he, he's definitely done some bad movies but he's done a lot of really but his bad movies movies are great some of them yeah i don't know about the wicker like the second bad lieutenant i think it was like it's just so crazy man like yeah So, so you like the wicker man too I, that, you know, I don't. I saw it years ago, but I don't remember it. There's one where he's like sentenced to go to hell or something, or he, then he has, he gets well, Ghost Rider. Out of hell to Ghost like Rider. save his daughter or something. It's like just so bizarre. Is that the one where he turns into like the skeleton? No, I don't. Know okay, because that, that was Ghost Rider, where he's, where he's riding the, the motorcycle that's on fire and stuff like that. Oh, oh no, no, yes, yes, it is that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some pretty, pretty um, good stuff. Totally. Yeah, totally. yeah. I mean, I've heard the stories about him. And I would love the party Vince, with Vince him. Neil hanging out here, and like, yeah, I, I, I just like, like, I've never, I've never seen it. Like never see him go out. There's like a, a tiki bar, kind of like punk rock tiki bar place where it's like he always seems to hang out. I like, and I don't really go out like I used to. But I'm like, oh, how come I've never ran into this guy? And I know people. Oh, we hung out with him all night. And I'm like, come on, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes they try to like really go incognito for sure. Now, um, the song, the song, thank you. What is that? Being that you wrote the lyrics, what does that mean to you? Like up in your castle and and stuff like that. Like what is the overall? And I'm not saying the dissect it and tell me what everything means, but overall, what does that song mean to you? Well, I haven't really thought about the lyrics for a while and everything, but um, if I'm recalling it right, it was just basically just you know me talking to myself about getting off your high horse about things and trying to get into a state of gratitude for what you have around. Just, you know, so I was probably, I think I was just thinking about just, you know, kind of assessing life at that point and just feeling, you know, grateful for things and you know and at the same i'm trying to think of the lyrics um yeah i forget the lyrics right now man but um well that's the song i'm going to play after this so everybody will be able to hear yourself down a a couple notches and realizing what you have and being grateful and just you know it's like a song about checking your ego basically you know what i mean i I get that Um, i totally get that but why yeah. is it called thank you? Where, where does that? that come? Why is it called thank you? Um, I think it's just a big general thank you to the universe for the life I've oh, had. Oh, like you're far. saying, like being thankful for things. Okay, and, and, okay, and that also, makes sense. It's probably a double meaning where I'm thanking myself for getting to a state of awareness about my own bullshit. Right, I mean? right. Okay, that totally makes sense now. Yeah, yeah. I, I love that. I love that. I love the song. Yeah. I love the I mean, chorus, you know, the harmonies. You know, you and kind stuff. of like you're always talking to yourself and it's like um, you know the Freudian like ego in the id. Yes, um, yes, the id. I like, the id I, there's a, a writer. I guess he was would be called a futurist. You remember? You remember in school reading Brave New World? I do. Yeah. That's Aldous Huxley, and he was considered a futurist. But he had a 
book about psychedelics called The Doors of Perception, where the doors got the name for their band. But in The Doors of Perception, it was about like, you know, a whole, I don't know if it was about a specific trip, but it was about psychedelics and tripping and getting out of your head. And, and he talked about, you know, the separate, you know, how separating yourself, probably from your ego from your id. Interesting. So in the song, Thank You, I think it's me and me and Mind at Large both singing the song. <laughs> you know what I mean? So right, right. it's like me and then me looking down at myself, you know? Yeah, just, you know, it's, you know, if you, if you can get to the point of like growing and pushing forward and, and being, being accountable for some of your own lack of awareness or bullshit, whatever. Yeah, that's, totally. You, know, you feel grateful about it because you're like growing as a human being. And to everybody listening, I'm going to be playing that song on here right after we get through with the interview with, with Jordan Cohen. Uh, excuse me, Jordan Cohen. <laughs> um, so let's talk about how you got into to Power Man. How, how did that work out? Like, how, how did you actually, did you audition and you just got the, you got the role or what? Yeah. Yeah, I did audition, but I happen to have associations with a couple of guys in the band through um, both my older brothers, which was interesting. But one of my older brothers at Berkeley knew uh, the drummer in Power Man, a guy named Alan Pahanish. And then my other brother knew Spider because they both worked at like a sandwich shop on like Commonwealth Avenue in Boston, this like college area near Boston University. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so they both knew these guys separately and I kind of heard about the band and, and then um, I don't think either of my brothers told me about the audition, I think, but I think one of them probably had a conversation, probably my brother with Alan, who was a drummer, and they were like, they wanted to get like a percussion guy who played like a stand-up drum kit, an additional percussion guy. And I was like, yeah, you know, I could probably do that. And then I went and, you know, it was cool and everyone liked me. And so then I started, you know, just trying to put together a weird little percussion rig. And all of a sudden we started rehearsing and we we're like, yeah, there's there's some magic happening here. So I think the band really kind of came a cohesive element when I joined the band. That's where we, we, we just started vibing you know what i mean and then right. it started like you know when you're in a situation you start like the, there's some power generating and we're like we're like oh it's like we're not completely in control of it but it's like oh there's something happening it just takes and a life of its we're own like, we're, we're doing some shit here and then it started to translate into the live shows and all of a sudden we're getting a buzz and then that's when um you know record companies started a couple of years down the line probably calling and but um and we just started building a really big local following but yeah it was just kind of a it, it was just one of those things where it's like yeah kind of know people so so rob didn't really like help out in that band no rob and spider were not even really talking at that point okay okay i was just gonna ask you how the relationship was on the outs or something you know and spider definitively did not he he was very able-bodied and creative and he's just his sensibilities are just a lot like rap i always felt a little bit like oh it must be tough for him because there's so much alike and everything but um after we after we got signed and moved to la we um were managed by rob's management and then rob came on as a co-manager no so shit nice we, we did got you guys ever play with him everything built up our following everything on our own without rob's help but then rob became a co-manager at the point when we got our record deal with dreamworks records and you know rob knows what he's talking about so it was you know very helpful nice nice and that was probably around the time when he started doing the movies too huh yeah i remember we were shooting a video for power man and i was just talking to him and he was talking about writing a horror script what he was talking about was house of a thousand corpses 
So that's my uh, favorite one out which of I all thought, of which I, you know, I'm, I'm definitely I'm a horror movie guy. I, I, I don't think all of his movies are equally good. No, they're not. They're House not, of a definitely. Thousand Corpses just had that real underground creepy vibe. It was great. Totally. I, I love that. Totally. And it, yeah, it just, especially like with the well scene and the, the tall guy coming out there and then they're putting the video, the uh, tape player so down there. Just, yeah, like he, he got some disturbed, like the, um, the scene where they bury the guy and the cast and then all of a sudden I was like whatever demon ghoul guys like break through the casket I mean yeah it's yes, freaky so. yes. and some of his shows like that show when I saw him with Pantera like in the middle of the set he had this this giant thing come down with all these clowns like hanging and stuff and I just thought that was the coolest fucking thing like it was, his, his shows were just insane and John 5 who was his guitarist and is his guitarist it is definitely one of the best guitarists i've ever seen in my entire life oh yeah he's yeah john well he's yeah definitely and he's an amazing um, human being he's a, mean, definitely like, he's a trained professional yeah great, so great good. player yeah Rob, rob's whole thing is like what i like about him is like he has a very cohesive um vision and world he creates like a, a world you know and like world builds a world up and it's very you know it's it, it all relates and it's just you know i like people with visions like that it's very yes interesting yeah. to me and he follows through with him, and it, it is old lady's pretty a uh, pretty awesome actor too, actress. What's that? His his uh, isn't his wife Moon? Oh, oh Sherry, yeah, yeah, Sherry, yeah. She's really sweet. Yeah, like I saw them Spider's birthday party like maybe five or six years ago or something, and they were totally cool. They were really nice, and she's really sweet. Yeah, Sherry's always been really yeah, cool, but yeah, Ralph, yeah, I mean they're cool. They're good people. And know? she I, she I, plays I, a psycho bitch like a really good like. Yeah, her little laugh and everything. It's like wow. oh yeah, yeah, she's a creepy laugh. Yeah, I'm I'm still friends with everybody from the band. And then incidentally, guys that were in Power Man after I wasn't even in the band, somehow I've become friends with. So it's kind of it's nice. really fun. like another one of the old drummers after Al left the band. This guy named Adrian. He's moving out here, and like we're we're buddies. And it's just it's funny. Yeah, I've become friends with a couple of the guys who were in the band years after me. <laughs> you know, which is strange. Yeah, that's. So that's really cool though so now let's move on to the to the blue man how did how did you get in because obviously you didn't you weren't a founding member but how did you get in that band same same kind of way no, just audition um, well it's kind of a good segue because a lot of guys in the boston rock community or a number of guys um, got involved with blue man group and a few of them became were in the show and then they eventually became music directors in the show but one guy in particular this guy named todd promoter who was in a few different really great boston bands he became a music director and then when I left Power Man I was in New York City and just you know trying to get gigs and, and random stuff I was like temp working and bust my ass and make a living and I heard about the Blue Man Group contacted him he was like yeah yeah there's some things going on but you know I'll get back to you at some point and then like maybe a year later he gets back to me and says we're putting together a show for Vegas and would, would I be interested well yeah, yeah I guess I'll be interested and then auditions came up and I auditioned and and uh, got called back and then I got another call back and then it was like yeah you're, you're part of it and you're moving to Vegas so then they had rehearsals in New York with a bunch of just random people that they hired for, you know there was always interesting Blue Man's always been interesting about who they cast the, the musicians and actors they really have a knack for putting together talented people from different parts of the country whatever and then we're all bonding a rehearsal but then it's a further bond of like oh we're all going to be moving to this new city together right right so um, you're like all these misfits then, together and you kind of like bond over that 
Yeah, so that was thousand, and we all moved out here. And, uh, amazingly enough, there's a good chunk of guys that you know from that time or a couple years afterward that are still doing it, like me. Like there's a number of guys that have been in it for like 23 years and stuff, you know. Yeah, and doing drums, it really does keep you in shape, and doing music in general. Just doing what you love, you know. Well, because I'm, you know, just think about it. You know, if you're unhappy and stressed out, it literally you, there's a physiological response. It creates cortisol all and makes you open for inflammation exactly so yeah so i mean it just it makes sense but yeah um yeah with the blue with the blue man drumming it's it's been the hardest drumming i've had to do in any gig i've had because it's just you're just all over the place you're doing a lot of stuff on the toms a lot of times you're playing constant eighth notes with both feet um and you have to look very tribal and crazy and they've always wanted you to hit really hard and then over time it's like that's kind of a it a little bit where it's you know you, you don't have to be killing yourself all the time but but it's always been a very physically active gig and then you're also performing we're, we wear face paint and costumes and we have to look like we're tribal and for over 20 years of doing it it's like 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 myself a lot of us have just chronic injuries at this point because it's just athletic neck arthritis for so many years you know I mean also just head banging and playing but who's your favorite drummer of all time I know you talked about Ringo and stuff like that but as far as is like if you had to pinpoint one drummer that you would just love to be in the same room with and maybe get a little lessons from or something like that a little yeah, information that's, that's, yeah i can't you, can you give me five or something you know how about like, how about three three okay you're, um, you're top tony williams drums jazz player Tony Williams okay uh, um, Stuart Copeland and now who is he police. Um, oh the police wow yeah Stuart Copeland from the police yeah um, say Tony Williams Stuart Copeland um, uh, I don't know man it's uh, you know who my number one rock drummer like I always loved Bonham and Pert and, but my number one rock drummer was kind of always Alex Van Halen alright everybody that was and I gotta get this right because I always fuck it up a little bit Jordan Cohen from Sons Perfect. What? Yeah, I actually got it right. And uh, his band is Sons of Jupiter. He's also the drummer for Power Man 5000. He's also in the Blue Man Group for Las Vegas. Definitely check out Sons of Jupiter. This is the song off the album that is my second favorite. It is called Thank You. You have a beautiful night. Drink myself to death. Uh, 
in a pool of toxic wounds I thought that I was less Special up in your castle.